economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith and economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gordney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Bernard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And we have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant. All right, well, we're going to continue our dive into philosophy with functionalism today. So this is our part three, where Justin's leading us through some key things to think about in life. So I think so far we've gone through dualism and materialism, and we've highlighted some problems that each of those theories of mind have. So remember, dualism says that the mind and physical reality or the mind and the body, as it's usually put in philosophy, these are two different substances and they interact with each other. And it seems to kind of fit with our uh, intuitive experience. You know, we've, we seem to like will that our arm goes up and our arm goes up. We touch the hot stove and it seems like we have a, you know, a mental event that happens in us. A problem for materialism is that it's very unclear how this interaction could ever happen. Since we know that physical events interact with other physical events via the laws of physics. And we seem to kind of understand how mental events and beliefs interact with each other too. They interact via the rules of logic. You know, if you believe A and you believe if A, then B, then usually the rules of logic compel you um, to also believe that B, if that makes sense. But we have no real understanding for how the mental could affect the physical or the physical could affect the mental in the sense that we don't have a law-like system like physics or like logic is that can explain how they interact. And in fact, physics, depending on which version of physics you believe, the entire conception of physics seems to preclude the interaction between physical entities and a different kind of entity. Physics is supposed to be causally closed and exhaustive in the sense that it's supposed to explain the way everything works. And when you look at a physical system operating, there's not supposed to be any outside pokers that come from outside that, that affect how things act. So a problem with dualism is typically called the interaction problem. Materialism was a response to dualism, and materialists said, well, maybe the only thing that's there is the physical stuff, right? Now, a problem with materialism is that it seems to, well, it explicitly does deny that the mental is anything over and above the physical, right? And a strong version of materialism says that the mental just is the physical, and if we look at somebody's brain when they're undergoing, for instance, the psychological or the subjective experience of pain, if we see that C-fiber 32 is firing, C-fibers are things that light up when humans are in pain, then maybe what the word pain just means is C-fiber firing, right? And so the strong version of materialism is called reductive materialism, and it says we can reduce our mental concepts or to physical concepts, or even eliminate mental or mental language altogether and just use physical language. So that was what, you know, that professor I talked about who said, my serotonin levels were too high and I almost wrapped the car around the tree, pour me a glass of Chardonnay and I'll be down in a minute, right? And that sounds like a crazy <laughs> thing to say. Or maybe instead of saying, you know, ow, you know, I cut my finger and it hurt to say, you know, I lacerated my fingertip and my C fibers are going insane, right? And that also sounds crazy, right? But there are bigger problems with 
reductionism and eliminativism than merely sounding crazy. And one of them is that consider something like an octopi or an octopus. Consider octopi. The eight-leg guy. Yes, uh, one of the eight-leg guys, right? Octopi are very weird creatures that you can watch if you look up on uh, Yeah, very smart. I've seen a couple of those documentaries. They're amazing. Videos of, you know, I need to be careful how I word this. If you look, if you Google like octopi after hours at the aquarium, sometimes fish will go missing. And then when you look at the security cameras, octopi are like climbing all over the place, (laughs) walking across the floor, getting fish, taking them back to their tank. They can squeeze through holes that are the size of a quarter. They also don't seem to have a scent. I know it looks like they have a giant brain in that thing there, but they actually don't seem to have the kind of centralized, intelligent nervous system that humans do. If you look at the evolutionary tree, octopi split off a very, very long time ago. So they have a system, a nervous system that is almost as close to that you would find of like, you know, an alien if they landed, right? And yet, you know, octopi, for instance, have no sea fibers. And yet it would be weird to say that octopi don't feel pain. If we take a giant scissors into the octopi's tank and we snip off, start snapping off, snipping off its uh, tentacles and uh, the octopi is writhing around and I say, Russ, stop doing that. And you say, <laughs> what? You just said octopi don't have sea fibers. They, you know, uh, what's the problem? And they're right? really tasty. Yeah. It might be objected that, well, it sure seems like octopi do feel pain, right? Even though they don't have sea fibers. And I think that's everyone's intuitive response that octopi do feel pain, even though they don't have C fibers and taking this intuition and really pushing it arrives, uh, gets you to what's called the functionalist theory of the mind. So reductive materialism says that the mind is matter and we can do token identities between specific brain states and specific mental states. And not only token identities, but also type identities. So we can say that pain just is C-fiber firings, right? But we also know that pain seems to be present in entities that don't have C-fibers. And octopi here is a good example. Another example would be if actually aliens did land, right? And they landed and they seemed friendly and they said, let us tell you about our people. We have dreams that that seem to match up closely to yours, our... Our culture has a series of myths that line up closely to, you know, your myths. Let's have a dialogue. And you say, I think these people look like, I, I think these beings look like they're pretty tasty. They've got 32 ribs on each side. Let's barbecue them, right? <laughs> and if you strap them to the spit and start spinning them around and they're screaming, you know, we just wanted to talk to you about our culture. Uh, and you, uh, you might still think, you know, there's something wrong here. Even though if you go like, but they're made of goo. They obviously don't, you know, they don't feel pain. What, what's the reason not to harm these people? Can, can I interrupt with what yes. I imagine is like the big objection to this is that like maybe there's other things like C-fiber that are like we could hypothesize exist in octopi and other things and really not having C-fiber is not a problem at all. It's Q-fiber or, you know, atomic structures or say something like that we haven't yet observed. Yes, that is the objection. That also is just functionalism. Right? Okay. So functionalism is the idea that what minds are is something like a computer is. Okay. What makes a computer a computer isn't what it's made out of. Sure. It isn't, you know, what makes a computer a computer is that it computes. Mm-hmm. Um, you can make a mechanical computer, Charles Babbage's, you know, mechanical computer, which is one of the first. 
You can make a computer out of vacuum tubes. You can make a computer out of silicon. And I mean, at least I think most people in this room, except for maybe you two, I can't even remember. I don't even know anymore. When you turned on a laptop, you used to, you know, a disc actually used to spin and mm. you could hear it spinning, right? But now, for instance, in mine, at least, it's all solid state. So there's no disk that spins and yet it computes. So you can realize computational properties in numerous different substrates, right? What makes a computer a computer is that it computes and you can compute using a bunch of different substrates. And that seems to make sense to everybody with computers, right? And so that theory of mind says, well, what makes something a mind then isn't what it's made out of, it's what it does. And if that's the case, then it seems like things that act like they're in pain, we should prima facie think that those things are in pain. Um, so we should treat minds in this sense like a black box, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what we mean by pain is whatever causes, whatever feature of that organism is responsible for pain behavior. In humans, it turns out the, that physical feature is C-fibers firing, right? In octopi, if we look, since their central nervous system is much more dispersed, it might be, you know, O tendons retracting or whatever, right? <laughs> I'm obviously not an octopus biologist or <laughs> kinesiologist, so I don't know what's in there. That would be the thing that counts as pain for an octopus. It's difficult because like the thing that we think of as pain is not the same thing as the thing we think of as like recoiling. And so it seems like there's a bundling issue here where like I shirk away from pain, but I also feel the pain. And to me, the pain is the feeling, not the shirking. But it seems like functionalism might bundle these things. I don't know. Hold on to that objection. <laughs> yeah, because it is an objection okay. and it's a good one. So can I restate it and see if you sure. agree with it? What I've been talking about pain, and then you said recoiling. So let's yeah. just use the word Physical like sensation response. of pain and pain behavior. Yeah. Right. I have been talking in the octopus about pain behavior. Right. And I have been saying, insofar as we want to say that the octopus feels pain, we should call pain whatever is responsible for that pain behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that works for computing, right? Because we just think a computer is whatever does whatever actually computes yeah but what we mean by that is that there is a third party objective criterion for what counts as computing you and i can both watch something compute and agree that it's computing you and i can also both watch something behave as if it's in pain and agree that it is exhibiting pain behavior but you are right to note that well at least in my first person experience what i mean by pain isn't pain behavior so the functionalist says, okay, that's fine. Whatever pain means then is going to refer to the physical process that is responsible for that behavior. And it's at least theoretically unbundleable. Well, the physical process that's responsible for the behavior is unbundleable from the behavior. Okay. You might still think that there is a bundling problem even after I unbundle those two things. Okay. And so hold that until after sure. the break because there is still a bundling okay. problem uh, to put all the cards on the table. The interesting thing about this is it is an attempt to view the mind in the way that we view a computer. It says that the brain is essentially hardware and the mind is software. Um, and how does that distinctive from dualism? Because I'm kind of hearing almost the same thing that way, that you've got this 
soul and body, but now we're calling it computing ability and physical. Well, nobody's a dualist about computers, right? I don't know. Explain. <laughs> uh, nobody says, well, you know, you type on your computer, but then this physical computer uh, actually interacts with the computing stuff, which is a different kind of stuff. And okay, okay. you know, the it exists in the computing realm. And then from the computing realm, the stuff in the computing realm interacts with this machine. And then there you go. Okay. And that is explicitly what substance dualists say. These are two different kinds of substances. Yeah, yeah. What you might be hinting at is something like property dualism, which uh, yeah. is 45 minutes in the future here. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So hold on to that one too. So maybe before we take a break here, I'll just outline why this theory came to prominence. I mean, it came to prominence in the 20th century, partly because of the failures of central state identity materialism which we've identified. Also, I don't think it's an accident that this theory came to prominence when computers also came to prominence, because once computers became widespread, it really did allow us to make this kind of hardware software distinction and to see that we can run the same software on different kinds of hardware. And actually, if you look back even at Descartes, Descartes thought of the mind like he talked about the mind operating according to humors, which are, you know, fluids. And the science of Descartes' day was, you know, the, the hot science was hydraulics. And so one of the things that you actually find as you look back through the development of science, people have been asking these mind-body questions for a very long time. In Descartes' day, the real scientific hotspot was hydraulics. And Descartes said, I wonder if the mind is like, a system of waterworks, right? Like mm -hmm. hydraulics. When the phonograph was invented, people said the mind is kind of like a phonograph, right? <laughs> Where uh, you can write down information and then it can be read later. In the 20th century, we have somebody saying, you know, people saying, well, maybe the mind is like a computer. And I had a philosophy professor who once said, you know, I'm sure if you go back far enough, there'll be some two cavemen standing one next to each other. One of them saying, maybe the mind is like a wheel. Right? <laughs> um, so maybe we should leave it there. As a with, pattern. And, and I should also say that if you give a talk on functionalism in anything like a psychology department or a neuroscience department, you will just get nods the entire time. And the reason you will get nods the entire time is because this is the theory of mind that is taught, uh, operated on, and believed by everybody in these departments. Mm. This is the theory of mind, it's you know, the ultimate theory of mind. There, um, there's a sense in which it might be one of the best scientific ways to look at mind. And to help people out, maybe, if it's psychology and you're kind of like, the functionalist approach might be the best way to do your job. The argument for it is that it is the best scientific way to understand mind, given where we're at right now, which again would make sense if it's analogizing the mind to whatever the hot science is at the time, right? Yeah. So maybe we should leave it there and then take it after the break, swing back and see whether there are, whether there's any merit to the objections that you two hinted at. All right. Sounds like a plan. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics.
The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. All right, we're back. So we need to explore some of these objections. And then we also want to weave in some faith components. I, I'm kind of curious if the Bible's story, worldview, whatever you want to call it, is more compatible with some of these philosophies than others, or if it's incompatible with some. So we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, take us through some of the objections, Justin. Okay. So Peter earlier brought up this claim that maybe we were kind of bundling responses and the physical cause of those responses. So, can, can I give an example yes, for, the list for the folks at home? I'm thinking of like in video games, sometimes the non-player characters are programmed in such a way that they'll like run away when they hear gunfire and or, you know, it, they'll fall over and like kind of struggle if you shoot them in the game. <laughs> These look like pain responses to me. And in a, like a simple video game, at least we wouldn't really like you and I probably wouldn't say, oh, yeah, this person's exhibiting pain right here. That would be kind of goofy. Advanced computers, maybe this is a harder question, but for the simple case. Yeah, so these are usually, these problems with functionalism were brought up by people who were called, you know, qualia freaks. Where, <laughs> Sounds like a whole story. Then. Yeah, so qualia it is the philosophical term for like subjective experience simpliciter. Subjective experience meaning the actual experience of, being, of seeing a color or mm. being in pain those kinds of things. And I take it, we all know what those are. Uh, we can say that there's somebody who is colorblind from birth has a different subjective experience when they look at a strawberry than you do, right? And mm -hmm. what is different in their experience, that is the subjective or qualia, right? Mm. That is the, I think the singular is quale. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, the differences between Peter is definitely right when he says that it seems like people were kind of bundling the response to pain and the brain or the physical thing that causes the response, right? And functionalism is an attempt to pry those two things apart and say, it's unlike state central state materialists, we don't think that the same cause or that the effect is... Um, it can't be pain unless it's caused by this particular physical mechanism. Mm -hmm. We think whatever causes this response, whatever mechanism, that counts as pain, mm -hmm. right? But there's a, a more subtle and sneaky bundling that's going on there when we're trying to say, well, now we are identifying the actual physical mechanism that causes the pain response, and we are bundling that with the qualia, with the subjective experience of pain. Mm -hmm. And it's not entirely clear that that's always the case. So a good, you know, a thought experiment from John Searle was the Chinese room, which is a famous one where he says, you know, I don't know any Chinese, but if you put me in a room and you give me a book of Chinese symbols uh, that just says, you know, on the left page, it says, when you get this as an input, output this symbol. And I get these symbols through a slot and I get a symbol in the slot on the left-hand side that looks like a squaddly do or whatever. And since I don't know what Chinese symbols mean, I just flip through my pages and I find the squiggly do. And on the other side, it says, in, you know, output the squiggly D. And so I output the squiggly D. And if the book is well-written enough, if the book is, in, is written by somebody who does understand Chinese, right? Then the inputs can be questions, you know, what's the weather today? And the output will be coherent answers about what the weather is today. Uh, but the problem is I don't understand anything about Chinese, right? Now, according to a functionalist, mm. that it seems like I am fulfilling, I am, I am exhibiting understanding behavior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's no understanding going on. There's no 
subjective experience of understanding. Wow, that's deep. So some people say, oh, well, maybe the room as a whole understands Chinese. That doesn't seem to make any sense. Or they say something like, well, maybe you plus the book understand Chinese. And Sora goes, I can memorize the book. But memorizing the book isn't going to give me what's called the semantics, putting meaning to words, right? Another example to bring this out might be something like spectrum, uh, what's called spectrum inversion. You can imagine waking up one day and going outside and the stop signs being blue and the sky being red. And this would be kind of weird for you. And you might think that this would screw up the rest of your day, right? If you are saying like, hand me the blue thing, the blue thing that's red to you or whatever, right? But something like this actually does kind of happen to us. If you look at like the, the, um, the dress thing from a couple of years ago when people were disagreeing about what color a dress was, you can just imagine something like that where you're the, you're the only one who sees the dresses as blue or whatever, right? And it's not just the dress, it's everything else. So what's happening with the, the dress example, does everybody remember this? Yeah. Right. It's that given the same objective thing, people are having different subjective experiences of it. Now, if it happened that you, uh, your spectrum was inverted, what do you think would happen for the rest of your life? Would you constantly be screwing up and getting in arguments with people about what color things were? No, you'd get used to it in about a month. You'd get used to it in about a month. Yeah. You'd probably change, right? Yeah. Your language. You see blue, you call it green just so you're compatible with other people. Yeah. <clears throat> well, suppose this happened a long, long time ago to you and you forgot about it. Maybe this happened when you were three. Is this logically possible? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can imagine, I mean, and this tends to be like the kind of like first year philosophy student question people ask. Like, do things look the same to me as they look to everybody else, <laughs> right? But the whole point of that thought experiment is that things could be experienced different to you than to everybody else. And yet we would still get along perfectly fine and talk with each other perfectly fine. Does that make sense? Yep. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple different actually kinds of colorblindness that can occur. They have to do with uh, your pigments being in, it's either your rods or your cones, I can't remember, but like red, green colorblindness. One of them is that some pigment from your green cone or rod is in the red cone or rod, and then some pigment from, and the other, you can have it the other way around as well. And, you know, in each case, you're unable to distinguish between red and green very well. There's actually a subset of the population that we know must exist due to the law of statistics that not only have the red and the green in their green, but also have the green and the red and that where it's completely switched. And we might think, well, what do we say about those people? We call them weird. Well, <laughs> we call uh, them names. The, uh, uh, just kidding. The upshot is that <clears throat> how do you know that's not you? Oh, weirdo. Right. Because I forgot about it when I was three and I just conformed. <laughs> You wouldn't even have to ever have forgotten about it. On this view, you would have learned a different name. You would have learned a name for the subjective experience you got from looking at a bus. But that subjective experience on this view would have been different than the subjective experience of all your peers, right? How yeah. could you ever determine the difference? So, so the bus is called yellow by everybody else. It looks yellow to everybody else, but it looks what it, what it looks like what everybody else would call blue to you. Your word for yellow is responsible is responding to the same things, yeah. but evoking a different yes. qualia in you, right? As a different, different subject of experience. Yeah. And it's impossible for you to figure out that that's the case because the only way you can figure out the case is by pointing at, you know, does this look blue to you, mm -hmm. et cetera? 
And your word blue is necessarily because of the way language is learned going to refer to all and only those things that everybody else calls blue, right? So it's not just that you could be different from everybody else. It's, I mean, everybody could be different from everybody else on this view. Now, if this thought experiment seems even possible, if only far-fetched, then functionalism has to be false. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because functionalism says, no, 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 no. Mental states are identical if given one cause, they have the same effect. Does that make sense? If looking at a bus makes you say it's yellow, then you are having yellow experience, right? And then your yellow experience on this view is the same as other people's yellow experience because what yellow experience is, is just the thing that a bus induces in you that causes you to say it's yellow. But the entire point of the thought experiment was, well, wait a minute, that's, it's entirely possible that, that that's not the case, right? Mm -hmm. And if that's true, then, there, then functionalism must be leaving something out. And it's clear that what functionalism is leaving out is the first person qualitative experience of the external world or qualitative experience, period, right? Does that make sense? Um, yeah. And if we really think about why that's the case, we can see that that must be the case and that maybe there's not going to be any, any way around this. What we were trying to, what we were aiming at was a scientific understanding of the mind. And when we do enough decouplings, like you were talking earlier, or unbundlings, it turns out that what we refer to really when we mean mind is at base, a kind of subjective experience. Yeah, the qualia. The qualia. But by definition, qualia are not third person and objective. They're private. They're mm -hmm. private. And the entire point of the scientific enterprise is to say as much about what we can objectively and third person say about the way the world works. This enterprise is necessarily going to leave out first-person subjective experience. There's, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's an empirical, basically, if I'm understanding this a little bit, there's no way to empirically test that because it is private and yeah. internal. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it's that by definition, these states are private and internal. And if we go all the way back to Descartes, He's insisting on the privacy. I mean, this mm -hmm. privacy has been, has been there the whole time. Accounting for the fact that we have experiences that seem private, and yet science tells us about a world that is physical, trying to navigate and come up with a single coherent description of the world that explains how these two things interact, especially trying to do that according to rules, which can necessarily only apply to one of those types of systems is bound to fail and it is going to fail. There's a, a quote, it uh, says, you know, it just kind of sweeps these problems under the rug and the lump shows. Yeah. This kind of denial of qualia is going to be anywhere you try to find a scientific experience of, or scientific explanation of what we mean by mind. Well, Justin, I know you're a big fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> so uh, let, let me give you so what I think might be like a type of functionalist response. I, I don't know. 
if Tyson is a functionalist, but like a type of a functionalist response. I'm curious what your answer is, and then I think we're pretty close to time. But couldn't someone say, like, maybe you see the lump in the carpet, but actually no one ever trips over the lump in the carpet and it doesn't cause any problems. And so, like, maybe functionalism is just, like, good enough and sure there's, like, some truth hidden underneath this. Like, maybe your yellow is actually my blue or something like that. But if we communicate and we never have any problems because of this, uh, your blue might as well be my yellow or something like that. I imagine this is a response that, fun like, modern functionalists would give, right? So they would deny that your blue is my yellow. Okay. Right? They might just say, <clears throat> we might have different experiences, but they're still this, they are still the same thing. The right. experiences might be qualitatively differently, uh, different, but on the functionalist view, they're still the same experience. Which yeah. sounds a little weird, but it might be the way, you know, they think about octopus pain too, right? It's not yeah. sea fibers, but whatever, whatever serves that role, that's fine. But note that what that means you have to give up in what I said, the the account of physics was earlier when yeah. I said the view of physics, closed. that it is ex not only closed, but exhaustive, yeah. right? So physics can still be closed. It still doesn't have any, it, you still might say that these experiences are ephemera that sure. don't really themselves never impact the world, never impact the world unless they are also identical with physical processes, mm. right? They could say the physical experience, the psychological experience you have of color though it is qualitatively different, it is also, you know, axion A77 in your brain communicating with, you know, a different what, whatever. And they could say, even though that's a different psychological experience for you, insofar as it is physical, it operates according to these physical processes. You can have whatever quality you like, but the physics is still going to be causally closed. But on this account, then it can't be exhaustive. Okay. It can't explain all there is, all there, all that there is to the world without also making the, un, the claim that, well, all there is, is physical. And that actually seems false given what we've just said, right? There could be, mm -hmm. there can be no clearer criterion of what is real, I think, to somebody than the realness of your own pain. Right. And your own subjective experience. If we admit that those things seem realer to us than chairs and features of the world, then for us to take physics seriously as closed, it can't be exhaustive. We could all we could open up physics and say, no, 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 no. What I mean by physics is this future theory that actually is going to be exhaustive. That's fine, too. But then you can't claim that that physics is restricted to only considering third-party objective uh, criterion of uh, what exists. So this is a real dilemma for the DeGrasse Tysons of the world, I'm sad to say. <laughs> All right, well, we have a little function to get to today, so we are going to have to table our infusion of faith and uh, biblical meaning into this, but we will be continuing it on the next podcast, so hold tight. We'll probably get into was the pain that Christ felt on the cross real or not, or what, you know, some of these fascinating topics that Justin helps bring us. Well, maybe we can just say one thing about whether or not this kind of, how this impacts on religion or faith or something. All right, like you that. get closing word, go for it. Which is just that the usual, you know, scientific atheist position, right, is just that physics is causally closed and exhaustive. Yeah. And if what we're saying is correct, one you have to give up one of those and so that that conception must be false yeah yeah all right we'll build on that also in a future 
Thank you all for listening. This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. And please help spread the word. A five-star rating helps other people find our podcast and pass it along to your friends and family with some links. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.